what can we learn from Margaret Thatcher's final years in office and out? Charles Moore will be here to talk about the third volume of his authorized biography, Margaret Thatcher, Herself Alone. Why would a mother ask a daughter to help orchestrate her own extramarital affair? Adrienne Brodeur will tell us about her memoir, Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. Alexander Alter will give us an update from the literary world. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is the Book Review Podcast from The New York Times. I'm Pamela Paul. Joining us now from Sussex, England, Charles Moore. He is the author of a trilogy, a biography in three parts of Margaret Thatcher. The latest is Herself Alone. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Pamela. Nice to hear you. So you've now been through about 2,700 pages of (laughs) Margaret Thatcher, and you're finally done. Let's go back to the beginning. You started off your first experience with Margaret Thatcher as as a writer was you were a staff reporter for the Daily Telegraph and then later a political columnist for the paper. What was your first encounter with Thatcher? Well, my actual first personal encounter was when I went to a dinner in the House of Commons in 1985, so that's in the middle of her prime ministership. And we had a big argument about the Anglo-Irish agreement, which she just signed. And very characteristically, she was very, very fierce with me and really put me down. But on the other hand, she really liked having the argument. And that was the thing about her. She was quite frightening, but she actually wanted to have the discussion. And so I remember feeling it was rather exhilarating. I didn't feel that she was being horrible to me. I felt she was just She wanted to have the fight, and it was actually enjoyable. At that moment, did you have any inkling that you would be writing an authorized biography of her? None at all. I got to know her a little bit when she was prime minister, and then a lot better shortly after she fell from office. And in 1997, she decided that somebody should write her authorized biography so that the person could look right through all her papers and interview her and her family and her associates. And she very kindly picked me. She never said why, (laughs) Um, but she did pick me. And that gave me access to really everything I needed. And I still don't really know why she asked me, but I guess I had the right career background of being close to the whole story in journalistic terms. So nothing was on limit. You had access to all of her personal and professional papers? That was it. That That was what she offered me. She wasn't paying me, of course. The publisher was paying me, but She gave me complete access to her papers, and she persuaded the British Cabinet Secretary to give me complete access to the government papers. This is all before they were released to the public, which most of them now have been. And so I could get on with the work, and I could talk to her and and really everyone. So I've I've interviewed 600 people for this book. Wow. How much time did you get with Margaret Thatcher herself? Well, in the early days, a lot. And then, as you know, the poor lady started to suffer a mental decline in the 21st century, in this century. And it was no longer fair to subject her to full interviews. But I used to take her out to lunch and have a bit of a chat and all come around to her house or something. And she wasn't capable of the full sustained interview. But if you would talk in a quiet way, things would come up. Bits of memory would occur you you repeat a name and it would jog her memory. And she still said interesting things, but I had to go more gently in the later years. One of the things that was so remarkable about her was her extraordinary memory and grasp of facts and the, the, yeah. the fact that she could be so well informed that she was always ready for that argument, whatever it might be. Was it That's right. quite noticeable? Was it sudden, that decline? Or how did you first perceive it? It was Just towards the end of the 90s, you began to see her getting a little bit of a muddle sometimes and getting the sequencing wrong or saying the same thing two or three times in a conversation as if she hadn't said it before, as if she didn't realize she'd said it before. And then it got pretty bad by the time her husband Dennis died, which of course distressed her very much. It was pretty bad. That was 2003. There was an element by which she could conceal this because she was a tremendous performer and a tremendous, almost like an actress. And for example, I remember how moved the American people were when she gave the tribute at his funeral in the National Cathedral. And you will remember that she actually wasn't well enough to give it in person. So it was on the screen in the cathedral. But she insisted on coming to the funeral. She pre-recorded it in London. It was on screen in the funeral. And there she was in the cathedral. And actually, 
really her mental condition was so poor that she didn't always know where she was. Hmm. But she was so devoted to President Reagan and so determined to keep up a good appearance that she went through it all beautifully. And then she flew on Air Force One over to California for the internment, with, flying with the family. And again, she sustained that with incredible sort of dignity and courage, even though, you know, probably if you asked her immediately afterwards what had happened, she probably wouldn't have, wouldn't have been able to tell you. What did authorized in this particular instance mean with the authorized biography? Did she have the right to review anything that you wrote? Did her estate? How did that work? No, no, that's a very important question. And one of the things she immediately said was, which was for which, which I think was essential for the success of the work, was that none of her estate or family would have any control, and nor would she. And she specifically said, that she would not be allowed to read the book in, and, and it could not appear in her lifetime. And the reason for that was she knew that if she didn't set such conditions, people would assume that she was trying to tell me what to say or tell me what not to say. But she really didn't do that. And, you know, to be honest with you, I thought she would try that a bit because she wasn't exactly a peaceful lady who just let the world go by. Right. I was <laughs> going to say, did her voice get in your head? Were you sort of imagining what she would be saying about what you were writing as you went along? Yes, in one way, but in another way, no, because the fascinating thing was, and really surprised me, and I think this is partly to do with her being the only woman prime minister. She did, she had a big egotism, but she didn't have sort of male vanity. So when you talk to male politicians, they always want to tell you stories about how brilliant they were. And she's just not interested in that. She was interested in the big picture. And I realized after a bit that actually she wasn't interested in what I was doing. And that was a great release because... I, I just knew I could get on with it. She would always answer my questions, but she wasn't sort of worrying about it. She was always a person to, to think into the future, didn't like looking back at the past, didn't like talking about herself. And in a curious way, I was examining a life that she herself had not examined. And I found that really fascinating. How did you approach the enormity of this project? I mean, first of all, did you know it was going to be three volumes? And then how did you do your research? Did you ask her about everything while you had her and then go back in time? I did stack up the interviews early on in the in the, the, her time because of beginning to see the possibility of her mental decline. But I didn't structure it very much. But there's so much material that you can't do the thing which people tell you you should do is do all the research and then do all the writing. Because if I'd done all the research and then all the writing, I would have forgotten what right. I knew at first by the time. I, so I did it volume by volume, more or less. And even more important than the interviews with her and with everybody else were the papers, because she governed on paper in a way that current British prime ministers don't. So she would write what she thought about everything all over the papers. And so it's completely fascinating to look through. You can see her governing by, through her own pen writing on other people's memos. And when you pull all that together and then you bring it more to life by conducting the interviews, you get the overall picture. I was contracted for three volumes. I said, I agreed to that. Then I said later on to the publishers, poor old readers, can't we just give them two volumes? And then when I got on to the second volume, I realized I was wrong because there's such a wealth of material that actually it had to be three. And though it is, you know, it's a lot to swallow, I think it is worth it because... She was in power for so long. She did so many different things. She became world famous. She became famous as a sort of female icon. The world changed so much in her time. The Cold War ended and so on. That I think it's, uh, it was important to tell that this, it's a big, big story. How did your impression of her change over the course of writing this book? I mean, I'm assuming you went in. You were no stranger to British politics, to Margaret Thatcher. You'd been writing about her for many years, reporting on her. And then you spent this whole time sort of immersed in her. What did you think of her going in and how did that change? In one way, she was the same throughout because it was perfectly true what she always said, that she was a conviction politician. And I knew what most of her convictions were. But what I didn't understand, I think, is two things. One is that she was a very cunning person, though she was also a principled person. And part of her cunning was never to admit that she was cunning, <laughs> if you see what I mean. She would always go flat out on the convictions and conceal how clever she was at dealing with people or at picking the right time when to do something or when not to do something. And the other thing that really struck me, because she's such a strong woman, is that she was also very vulnerable, anxious, and lonely. And a lot of that is to do with 
again with her sex because she was the one and only woman at the time. And she came from outside the sort of charm circle of the conservative upper classes. She was the, the, the daughter of a provincial grocer. And she therefore believed, and I, I think she was probably right to believe this, that as she put it, there's no second chance for a woman. The mm-hmm. men, if they, if the men, if they fouled up, you know, they would look after one another, not her. And that's why she had to be so perfectionist, so dominant, to grasp every big subject, never to admit error, and so on. And I think that really, that vulnerability and loneliness is a very powerful driving force in her life. And it also caused her trouble at the very end of her time in office, because when they were beginning to plot against her, she was a bit isolated from her colleagues and didn't know in the way that perhaps a a man would more easily have known what they were up to. The man would have been more in the club, if you see what I mean. Right. And And she didn't really have the right lines of communication about what the plots were and didn't spot early enough the signs of discontent. Is that where the title of this particular volume came from, Herself Alone? Exactly right. And in all three titles, I've tried to use a phrase which refers to her sex because this is such an important theme. It's an obvious one, but it is deeply important. So the first title is Not for Turning, which is a shorthand from her famous phrase, The Lady's Not for Turning when she was saying, I'm not going to go back on my policies. The second volume is from a song by Wham called Everything She Wants, because that expresses her dominance in the middle period. And the last volume is Herself Alone, because I think she was alone both in her fall and indeed in her declining years. I'm trying to now imagine what she would think about one of the subtitles of your biographies of her coming from a Wham song. (laughs) She would... (laughs) She wouldn't have heard of Wham, I can assure you of that. <laughs> she, she had to give a long joke once, which, which she delivered brilliantly at one of her party conferences, which was all based on the Monty Python dead parrot sketch. And she'd never heard of Monty Python and she didn't understand the joke. And, <laughs> but she still managed to you know, deliver it superbly. She was very, very ill-informed about television and popular culture. What was her interest? Like, what were her cultural interests? Well, to some extent, she was... Uh, such a workaholic that she didn't have many outside, but she did very much like the decorative arts and she loved poetry. And this was very important. She didn't like fiction because like some people, she was a bit literal minded about fiction and she sort of thought, you know, it's all made up. So what's the point of reading it? But with poetry, she loved its uh, sonorous qualities and it's moving in stirring qualities. And she knew uh, large chunks of English poetry and, and to some extent American poetry, Longfellow, by heart, and used to declaim them as a young woman and in public. And in her old age, her carers very cleverly understood that this was one of the few things that stayed in her mind. And so she and her carers would recite, you know, Kipling, Longfellow, Tennyson, Hardy, and these wonderful phrases, which would, and also hymns. She knew a great many Christian hymns. And um, all this was very sort of deep in, inside her her heart and her head. You start this volume in 1987. Where is Margaret Thatcher at that moment? And and why begin the third volume there? She just won her third and final election victory. And of course, she never lost an election. And she was right on top, therefore, starting her third term, slightly against the expectation she'd done very, very well in that election. And her critics were confounded. And she appeared to be in a very strong position. But by May 89, which was 10 years almost to the day from when she became prime minister, it all started to go downhill. And so what you see in this volume is from the absolute top of the tree to disaster and resignation in November 1990. And then, of course, her period after leaving office, which was active for 10 years and then in real retirement because of her mental decline until she died in 2013. So it's this great trajectory. And this is partly comes back to the vulnerability point that I mentioned to you earlier this very, very strong and powerful woman turning in the course of this volume into a vulnerable one. What was the state of England like in 1987? And then what happened over the course of that third and final term in office? Britain was doing very well because of her economic reforms by 1987, much more economic growth, a return to high employment rates, the defeat of restrictive labor union practices, the effect of privatization, the booming stock market, the openness to the world because of getting rid of exchange controls and all that sort of thing. And 
that most of that was maintained in her third term, but the economy overheated, inflation started to return, and she introduced a very unpopular property-based tax, the poll tax, which started to turn her natural supporters against her. And so it wasn't looking nearly so good by 89-90. And there were lots of other rows to the big arguments about Europe, which essentially are the the forerunners of the arguments we're having now in this country over Brexit, Mrs. Thatcher being on the Eurosceptic side of the argument. And everything started to become much more difficult. And I think her personal relations with her colleagues were breaking down. And on the international arena, her very, really rather beautiful relationship with President Reagan was not replicated with President Bush. They respected one another, but President Bush felt that Mrs. Thatcher had had too much sway over... Yeah. Yes, and the U.S. government, particularly with Mr. Reagan personally, but also a sort of sway almost within the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. And President Bush thought that was inappropriate. And he also thought that for geopolitical reasons about the end of the Cold War, that he needed to pay more attention to Germany, which he believed should reunite, and less to Britain. And this upset her, of course. I want to jump to something you mentioned, which is the obvious parallel between today and then in terms of Britain's relationship with Europe. What was that relationship like when Thatcher was in office? What did she want to do? And then perhaps what might she think of the situation today? She started pro-European, though I would say never very strongly pro-European. She had some very bruising battles in her time as prime minister with the European community, as it was then called. She won one of them about the budget. She won another one about the single European Act. But then she got very worried towards the end of the time by the attempt to create much greater integration, much less national independence, and in particular, the single currency, which became the euro. And she fell out with colleagues about this. And at the very end of her time, she started to argue that we should have a referendum about single currency, which was essentially, in her mind, going to put forward the same sort of arguments as we've had in our recent referendum, which is, who do you want to rule you? Do you want your own elected people to rule you? Or do you want a foreign organization to rule you, which you can't get rid of? And this dismayed her senior colleagues. It was quite popular in the country, but it really dismayed them. And it divided the party. And that was a big issue in her fall, I would say, not in public opinion, but in among senior colleagues. And then after she left office, she kept up this point about the referendum. And so she's very much the forerunner of where we got to in 2016. And in private, and she said this to me among many others, but never in public because she was advised not to, she thought that we should leave the European Union. She was very clear about that. But by this time, she was quite an old lady. And people said, if you do this, it's so divisive within the party that you know, you'll spend the whole rest of your life arguing about this and it'll be terrible, so so don't. And she didn't. But that was the trajectory of her thought. And so there's a lot of Thatcher influence in where we are now. Well, let me ask you this question, moving away from contemporary British politics for a minute. What do you consider to be the characteristics that, that drove her most, both positive and, and negative? Uh, belief in her country and in the greatness of Western civilization and the importance of liberty were all absolutely core. And she believed very much in in advancing liberty, so she wanted to spread it to Eastern Europe, and in defending liberty, which is why she was so keen on strong defense. With that also was a great personal ambition. And I think sometimes she confused her personal ambition with her views and almost thought that the success of Margaret Thatcher was the same as the success of Britain. The loneliness that I mentioned earlier, I think it's part of a fantastic drive as the only important woman in, in the system at the time to, to achieve. Her daughter Carol told me once that Margaret never experienced nothingness. And I think what Carol meant by that is she had none of that sort of daydreaming that most of us have. She wanted action, action, action all the time, thinking really hard about how to move forward and how to win. And I think Uh, This was her sex and her character and her belief. And she wanted to galvanize her whole country in that way, and if possible, the wider world. And you have to say, in many ways, she was extremely successful at that, because what I find is almost the most striking thing about her legacy is not so much her specific beliefs, though they are very important, but the example of a particular type of leadership. And I find that's what resonates a particular type of woman leadership in uh, in particular. And I find that resonates very much across the world. When I speak in the United States or the Far East or Eastern Europe, 
that's what people remember. It's a sort of, as it's a, the overused word now, but it is iconic. And so the handbag, which is traditionally, you know, the symbol of of woman's beauty, not of woman's, not a, not a political power, became under her the symbol of political power. What did she consider to be her greatest achievement? And what do you think her greatest achievement was? One way she put it was that she changed Britain so much that we we could now afford to have an electable Labour government under Tony Blair. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, the whole subject matter of politics had, had been so victorious for conservatives that even the Socialist Party had had to change. I think she did produce economic turnaround and she did restore the idea of freedom in the West and export it to oppressed countries. I think her contribution to Eastern Europe was tremendous. I also think that he did much, much more, not always for good, but for good and ill, than any other British prime minister in peacetime in the era of universal suffrage. So in peacetime, she's actually more important than Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill was obviously the only other 20th century prime minister of global renown. Mm -hmm. So I don't think you can think about British politics, British history, without thinking about her a very great deal. And to some extent, you can't think about the history of the modern West without thinking about her a very great deal. That is an incredible achievement. And the thing about it is it's very personal. I mean, and this was, in in some ways, I criticise her for this because she didn't bring in colleagues in enough on it, if you see what I mean. It wasn't shared enough. And this is a bad thing in a, in a cabinet system. But it was very, very remarkable. And what I constantly come back to in writing this is just how remarkable her story is. It doesn't matter so much whether you approve of her, you know, love her or hate her, and a lot of people did one or the other. It is just very extraordinary. Well, that brings us back very appropriately to the title of this last volume, Herself Alone. The book is Margaret Thatcher, The Authorized Biography. This is the third volume. Charles, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Pamela. I've enjoyed it. Charles Moore is the author of The Authorized Biography of Margaret Thatcher, reviewed on the cover of this week's book review. So here's a request for our listeners. I get lots of feedback from you, some complaints, lots of kind words. Really appreciate it. You can always reach me directly at books at nytimes.com. I will write back. But you can also, if you feel moved to do so, review us on any platform where you download the podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or somewhere else. Please feel free to review us and, of course, email us at any time. Alexander Alter joins us now with some news from the literary world. Alexandra. Hi, nice Hi to see you. I saw you last night at the National Book Awards, so I thought we could talk about the end of this year's literary award season and some of the winners. I thought it was a really fun night. Everyone was very optimistic. There wasn't like a big overarching theme the way there has been in previous years when it's been more politically charged. But, you know, I thought it, everyone seemed to be in a good mood and, yeah. and no controversial speeches. No, there were no controversies, although <laughs> some surprises. Some surprises, for sure. So let's talk about the big winners and, and some of those surprises. So Susan Choi won for her fifth novel, Trust Exercise. And she was in pretty interesting company this year with the fiction finalists. It was a very diverse group of finalists in terms of both style and subject matter. There was Marlon James' epic fantasy novel, which I think was one of the most anticipated books of the year. And he's won the Booker, and so he seemed like a good possibility. And then there was Julia Phillips' debut novel, Disappearing Earth, which I think got tremendous reviews. And so I think there's often a lot of excitement around a debut author as opposed to someone who's well-established like Susan Choi. One of her novels was previously a finalist for the Pulitzer, so she's pretty well-established. And last year, Sigrid Nunes won the Fiction Award, and she's also at the height of her career. So I think it's kind of counterintuitive, but it also is nice to recognize writers who have you know been steadily putting out works that have gotten a lot of critical acclaim but maybe don't have a wide audience or as wide an audience as they could have. Yeah, the Susan Choi got a very positive review from Dwight Garner, our critic, but yes. also quite negative review in the book review from Elizabeth Egan, yeah. who podcast listeners will remember. She's joined us here for what we're reading. So, so. it's one of those kind of polarizing books in a way, which is always interesting when those come up. Because, you know, of course, 
in previous years, the way these prizes work is there can be kind of a stalemate. So two of the top contenders, neither of them might win, and it might go to a third person just Mm -hmm. because people can't agree on what the best book of the year is. It's interesting. Yeah, I think there was also that fifth book, right? Sabrina and Karina, that was a dark horse in the race. People it was, were not yeah. as familiar with that Yes, book. that's by Kale Far Farjado and Steen, and it's a short story collection, I think set largely in Colorado, which follows the lives of Latina women there. And finally, Leila Lalami, her novel, The Other Americans, was one of the finalists. So let's go to nonfiction, where it feels like there was so much goodwill and support for the winner this year yes, in the audience. Yes. So Sarah Broom, her memoir, The Yellow House, won, and there was a huge outpouring of cheers and applause. And she gave a very moving speech. Her mother was with her, and she spoke about how her mother, who raised 12 children, really instilled a love of language in her and was I think her phrase was her mother was always wolfing down words, whether she they were in the grocery store looking at ingredients or she was looking at something at home. And so she said that taught her to think of words as a form of sustenance, which I thought was a really lovely way to put it. I think that book got tremendous reviews as well, and there was a lot of goodwill behind it. And it was interesting that out of the five nonfiction finalists this year, three of them were memoirs. So you're seeing a real acknowledgement of sort of the literary quality of, of memoirs. And poetry, I always love that award because the people that publish poetry, that read it, that write it, you know, that's a lot of these independent presses typically win the award. This was Copper Canyon Press, right? This year it was Copper Canyon Press. So Arthur Z won the poetry prize and he said, you know, he thinks poetry is more essential than it's ever been before and it's just critical to literary culture, and he gave a lovely speech. So there was a lot of excitement. I thought the—I'd be curious to hear what the reviews were at your table, but back in the press bleachers, the kind of big—the biggest laughs had to do with uh, Edmund White's acceptance speech. He won the Lifetime Achievement Award, and it was presented by John Waters, who was absolutely hilarious in his introduction. I don't think I've ever— at any of the National Book Awards I've attended over the years heard sex referenced as much in an introduction to a Lifetime Achievement Award. It was there, quite fun. It was received very well at the New York Times' table, uh-huh. I have to say, and I think throughout the room. It was just totally charming. And, you know, I didn't realize until Ed White came up and accepted it that they have been longtime friends. It doesn't surprise me. But you could tell, you know, in retrospect, because it was such a, a warm and affectionate speech, and you really could not make all of those naughty references and, and, right. and kind of poke fun at the recipient if you didn't actually know them. Yes. <laughs> you wanted and to have an uncomfortable scene afterwards. Absolutely. And then Edmund White, when he you know got up to give his speech, was, I thought, just absolutely charming, kind of poking fun at, you know, the writing life as a opportunity to engage in alcoholism and adultery and, you know, what do you do with the other 23 hours of the day when you spend one hour writing? And the one thing, you know, I thought it was quite moving when he talked about his struggle to get published because he really was a trailblazer for, you know, literature that featured same-sex couples and and gay characters. And he said, some. this is the quote from his speech, he said, my gay subject matter was offensive, meaning to publishers, especially because I didn't write about hustlers or criminals or drag queens, but rather about the middle-class guy sharing an office with you. And he even, I think, referenced someone in publishing telling him, you know, I love your book. I think it's very interesting. You're a great writer, but I worry if I publish it, people are going to think I'm gay. I mean, that was sort of the attitude then. And then he managed to break through, and he, I think, was enormously influential in that. You know, he said he had shelved four gay novels, and then he got his fifth published. So. Well, he has a, a book coming next year, a novel about two women, one of them a nun yes. um, in Texas. <laughs> I'm very so, excited to um, read it. We'll, we'll <laughs> get a taste of that in 2020. All right, Alexander, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Adrienne Brodeur joins us now. Her new memoir is called Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. Adrienne, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Pamela. Well, tell us what this memoir is about. In a nutshell, this memoir is about my very complicated relationship with my mother, Malabar, who, when I was 14, brought me into an extramarital affair she was having while she was married to my stepfather. 
And it sort of starts with a very pivotal moment in my life, which is when she actually came into my room late at night to tell me that my stepfather's best friend had kissed her. And then sort of the repercussions and ripple out effects of having to hold such a big secret for such a long period of time. All right, let's scroll back to Malabar as a mother before that moment when you're 14. What was she like as a mother? You also had a brother. And what was your relationship with with your mother like before that moment? Well, you know, my mother was a very fabulous person. I mean, she really embodied that grand first name of her. She was charismatic and she was beautiful. And she was, you know, though, although she wouldn't have described herself, I'm sure, as a feminist, you know, she was a feminist before her time. And she, in the truest sense of the word, she kind of pursued her life and the life she wanted without worrying about other people that much. So despite some of her more dubious maternal instincts and, you know, obvious boundary crossing, as as a mother to me, as a young girl, I mean, she was a lot of fun. She was always game for adventure. We would go swimming and, you know, on Cape Cod and go clamming and, and cook together. And she was all things. So I think, you know, the temptation is to view a mother like this in sort of the monster mother sort of perspective. And the fact is, you know, the most important thing for me in writing this book was to present a very nuanced portrayal of both her and of our relationship. And your father, Paul, what was your relationship with him like and his relationship with your mother? And when did they split up? Well, they split up when I was about four. And it was early 70s as their divorce was finalized. And it was a different time. It was a different... So we had the customary every other weekend situation with my father. But when my mother remarried, we moved to a different state. He was dutiful. We always saw him. But as a child, I didn't have a real, a very open relationship. We didn't talk a lot about emotions and stuff at that age. I mean, I'd say I do it more now as an adult with him. But also... This was a secret I was holding for my mother, sort of his former wife. He was the last person I would have been able to confide in or talk to about this. There's also your stepfather, Charles, and you were quite close to him. I adored Charles, and he was a lovely man. He also had four strokes in five days right before, within the weeks before their marriage. So he changed dramatically as my mother became his wife. He went from being, I think, the love of her life to, again, I have to imagine this because I was eight years old at the time, but more of not quite an invalid, but someone she had to take care of, someone who had quite a bit of paralysis in his body and really needed help with some daily functions. And who was Ben Souther? Ben Souther was Charles's best friend. They had been childhood friends. They had known each other for 50 years. They hunted and fished together. They dated each other's sisters. Ultimately, they became godfathers to each other's sons. And he was just in every way Charles's opposite. He was very physical, incredibly smart, which Charles was as well, but very much an outdoorsman and sort of always doing something. He also happened to be an avid recreational hunter and fisherman. So tell us again now in a little more detail about the night that your mother confesses to you that Ben has kissed her. So I was 14 years old. The year was 1980. The setting was my mother's home on Cape Cod, Orleans, right on Nosset Bay. And they'd had the Southers up as weekend guests. And It was well after midnight when I heard sort of the door open to my bedroom and my mother came in and sat down on the bed beside me and tried to get me to wake up. And I I really remember not wanting to wake up at that moment. I had been smooching with the boy on the beach myself earlier that (laughs) night and I was enjoying thinking about that and I just didn't know why she was in my room. And then she said, Ben Souther just kissed me. And of course, with that, my eyes popped open. And what I didn't know in that moment was she was about to embark in this epic love affair. But what I did know really in real time was that everything had changed between us. I'd I'd gone to bed as her daughter and sort of firmly entrenched in the land of childhood. And I woke up as her confidant and 
great friend and 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 I ultimately became a collaborator with her. Why would she do that? Why <laughs> turn of all people that she could have picked to tell about that illicit kiss, why would she choose her 14-year-old fast asleep daughter? <laughs> it is the question and the question that, that I've asked myself and at different points in my life that I've asked her. And I, I don't actually know the answer. What does she say? Or what did she say? She felt that we were so very close. I think probably, you know, she's never been particularly apologetic about this choice of hers. And I think, you know, she knew I adored her. I was 14. I was in her thrall. I wanted her to be happy. Suddenly she seemed happy. So, and I think probably, you know, some part of her knew that I would be, you know, this is sort of terrible to say, but easily manipulated. And I also think it was impulsive. I'm sure she'd had way too much to drink. I think she sort of stumbled in and then everything changed between us. And whereas you or I, hopefully, if we ever made such a huge mistake, would have the next morning been, oh, good Lord, my dear, I'm so sorry. And let's pretend that never happened or let me, un, you know, scroll back. But she didn't. And instead, we just kind of, our relationship was reformed. And we took off in this really initially giddy and thrilling new model. When I was writing the memoir, I had to loosen my own story and and explore hers. Her childhood makes mine look like a walk in the park. She had very volatile, narcissistic, and alcoholic parents who were married to each other, divorced, married to each other again, divorced again. There's this legacy of secrets and deception in my family. Her father had a family outside of his marriage, one that we know of, probably more. (laughs) And so I think this probably was normal for her. I don't know that her mother wrapped her into similar stories, but I can imagine that she might have. And I think in that way that all of our childhoods seem normal to us, I don't think she felt like it was outlandish. You use the word giddy to describe the mood. I mean, this was probably very empowering to you at that moment. It was. I mean, of course, now as a 54-year-old woman with a 14-year-old daughter of my own, you know, I see everything that any reader first picking up this book would see about what a burden and how inappropriate and everything else. But at the time... It was so magical to feel that close to her, to feel that important in her life and be that, have that bigger role in her drama. And it was, you know, very much, I always felt like, you know, she would come rushing to me with some big issue. It was just exciting, for lack of a better word. And I felt like I was sort of the girl steering the getaway car and she was running out of the bank. (laughs) Did she specifically ask you to keep the secret? And then what else did she ask you to do? And what did you volunteer to do? It absolutely was presented as a secret and that this must go nowhere. Your friends can't know, your father can't know, your brother can't know, all of those things. So one of my main roles early on was to suggest a walk after dinner. So I I should back up a little bit and say that it was an affair that was sort of carried out in plain view, meaning that the couples were friends and she actually cultivated a relationship with Ben's wife. And they also created this ruse, which was the Wild Game cookbook that they were going to write. My mother was this astonishing cook. She'd studied at Le Cordon Bleu and wrote cookbooks and all sorts of things. And Ben was, as I said before, a a huge hunter and fisherman. So they created this situation where they would meet regularly. And what my, my first role was to suggest after they'd had one of these wonderful dinners was to suggest that we all go for a walk. And because both my stepfather and Ben's wife were in poor health, they would demure and my mother and Ben and I would go skipping out. And it looked so innocent, of course, with a a teenage chaperone. And, And Ben, for whatever reason, this didn't occur to me till much later, but I mean, he didn't have any problem that I knew. (laughs) So it, it just seemed like it was okay. So what ends up happening with their relationship over time? There's a lot to that. You know, they were very, very, very in love. They 
kept at this for years, probably 10 years of, you know, meeting and seeing each other and having these dinners and so on. At some point along the way, my stepfather died. So this is Charles. Charles, yes. That shook up the balance of things. But later, Lily died. And I I don't know if this is a spoiler, but in the end, my mother and Ben got together and were married for 20 years. So in that way, she doesn't really follow our cultural norms of what happens to adulteresses. Yes. You know, typically they're either punished, certainly in literature they're punished. And generally speaking, as far as I know, things don't tend to work out. And yet this one did. And she got more or less a happy ending, which I think also makes people a little uncomfortable. Were you able to keep that secret the entire time? No, no. But I I kept it for a long time, and I confided very carefully and to very few people before the secret actually erupted on its own, mostly because the stakes were so high. The stakes were high, and also you could really be in or out with my mother. Her Affection was kind of the most important thing to me, that that we were close and that I was loyal to her. All right. I'm giving another spoiler here, but you married Ben's son. (laughs) How does that come about? Indeed, I did. So, you know, this to me, the most interesting part and was a really important part of my examination of myself in this book, because I think it is very forgivable, my 14-year-old self, and that this sort of event, these events happened to me, and I didn't have a ton of choice. You know, and I kept trying to pull back at different points along the way. After my stepfather died and I was in college, I tried to pull back. I took a gap year before college and tried to pull away. But inevitably, I was sort of pulled back into the vortex of their dynamic. And what happened was after my stepfather died, my after a period of about a year of, of genuine grief on my mother's part, she decided to figure out how to host a joint family vacation between the Southers and our family. And that was when I met Jack Souther for the first time. And I fell in love with him. And it was... So (laughs) very complicated, of course, because at first, also, I tried to hide it from my mother and Ben. I just thought, oh, we should, you know, both both Jack and I thought, let's just see if this is at all going to work out before we get everyone's hopes up. Because I think that they did have some designs and desires to make this happen. I'm, you know, I can't be sure of that, but it, it felt that way. And then, of course, I held the secret from Jack. And I think that... That is the point in the book where I just, I wonder why I leaned in instead of leaning out. Because I don't doubt that I was genuinely in love with Jack. I was. But it was terrible to hold this secret. And and frankly, when the secret came out, it was stupid of both of us that we didn't actually really examine it at that time. And, and sort of either make room for a much more authentic examination and truthful discussion over what had happened and how to move forward or or step back from the relationship. And I think what we did in some ways was put the blinders on and sort of say, you know, wow, that is a terrible thing that our parents got you involved, but, you know, thank goodness it's out. Did you feel like you had figured out what you thought about all of this, figured out what it meant, and then set out to write about it? Or was the writing of the memoir itself part of that coming to understand it? Life is long. I mean, I think I thought I'd figured it out every step along the way, right? 14, 17, 23, what have you. Certainly writing about it was a very clarifying moment, clarifying process is what I should say. But I think we all have this desire for closure in a way that just is not real. And I I think I will always be figuring it, this out. It is such a fundamental part of who I am. And there's, I mean, and sort of the lens through which I see the world, there's this moment in our family's history. I'm married again and have been for quite some time and happily married. And I, my husband is from a a very big, highly functional family. (laughs) Um, But when his father died, we all 
gathered. He's one of six. There are 15 grandchildren. We all gathered at his mother's house. And at some point, one of the adult grandchildren found a locked stainless steel box in the basement. And they all greeted this as if it was just fantastic news. What on earth could my father-in-law have had in a locked box? And of course, I alone was panicked. I just, I, all I remember thinking is this is the moment when my mother-in-law's life is over. Because in my family, no good news would ever be found in a locked box. I mean, that would be an illegitimate child. That would be an affair. That would be something very dark. And of course, this box was pried open and I nearly leapt on the table on top of it. And it was love letters. (laughs) My father-in-law had saved every love letter his then girlfriend had written to him before he got married. And my husband just looked at me, but this is my worldview. And that's the part that that won't, I won't be able to change. I mean, I, I'm, what I'm hoping is that I in no way pass this along to my children, that I am making my life so much better. I'm definitely a very honest person these days, but there'll never be a locked box that I find thinking everything's great. One last question I can't help but ask. You mentioned you have a 14-year-old daughter yourself. Has she read the book? She has started the book, and I have chosen to take this as great news, but she kind of put it down. And I think, first of all, she does know the story. I've talked to her about that. And she has a lovely relationship with her grandmother, my mother. But, you know, I was so singularly obsessed with my mother's interior life when I was 14. So I feel so happy that she is got her own busy social life. She likes to read world-building fiction, Rick Riordan, Greek mythology. So it it only seems like good news to me. I'm sure (laughs) she will read it, but it doesn't seem pressing. There's nothing, you know, more humbling for a parent writer to find the total disinterest on the part of their children. (laughs) You're not the only one. (laughs) Adrian, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Adrian Brodeur's book is called Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. We've dragooned two of our colleagues from the wider newsroom this week to talk about what we're reading. A.O. Scott joins us. He is a co-chief movie critic for The Times and Susan Dominus, a staff writer for the magazine. And John Williams, our regular. Hey, guys. Hi, Pamela. Hello, Pamela. All right. Let's start with you, Tony. You've been on here before. Yes. What are you reading this week? This week, I've been trying to catch up, which is uncharacteristic for me. Usually I'm years or decades behind. But this fall, for some reason, I've been trying to read the books that are being read and being talked about. So I've I've gone through a lot of the the nonfiction titles, the the two Me Too books, she said, by our colleagues Jody Cantor and Megan Tui and Ronan Farrow's Catch and Kill. Are you going to do a compare and contrast? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on. They're both very, very good books and very unpleasant books to read in their different ways, but both very admirable and both um, testament to... uh, to journalism and what it looks like when it's done well. But I've been trying to also read, kind of catch up with fiction, and I sort of go through periods of not reading any fiction at all because I'm just overwhelmed with movies and then of wanting to read as much as I can. So I'm way behind on this year's books, and I just have been reading last year's National Book Award winner. I guess the National Book Awards were just this week. Last year's National Book Award fiction winner, The Friend by Sigrid Nunez, who's a writer I discovered this summer While I was working on a piece for the magazine about Susan Sontag, she has a wonderful memoir of the time that she lived with in Susan Sontag's apartment in the 70s. Nunez was not a writer I'd ever read before, and I was just so kind of intrigued and captivated and a little bit haunted and freaked out by her very clear, very deadpan, but very, very probing way of writing. So The Friend is really amazing book. Certainly one of the finest books about a dog that I've read. How many memoirs are there about Susan Sontag? Quite There's a few. A Terry Castle wrote about her in a highly entertaining way and yep. in one of her books. There's a whole kind of mini genre. Sontag's son, David Reef, wrote a memoir of, of her death. Philip Lopate wrote a sort of a, a book about, not so much a memoir, but kind of about his lifelong interaction with her as a fellow writer and as a reader. I got a lot of letters after that article appeared from people who had their own little Susan stories to tell. Oh, really? Can and you just, share any? Some of them were a bit indiscreet um, <laughs> and, and hadn't— Can you share any? <laughs> 
there, this there, is the place for that. There <laughs> was there was one person who had a story about being a student of hers at Columbia in the early '60s as a freshman and hanging out with her during the Cuban Missile Crisis and turning down her offer to go to bed with her. Something that had haunted him for the rest of his life. <laughs> How does the now I'm going to hear from him again. <laughs> How dare you talk about that on the podcast? Right. All blind, blind you, item. When you're thinking about what to read, does your film viewing, film criticism life factor into that decision? Like you need something to kind of offset what it is that you're seeing yeah. on screen? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to gravitate for whatever reason toward books that are not easily adaptable to film. So, I wonder I mean, why. Yeah, that, that, are, that are just very sort of discursive or very inward or, or not plot-driven and that are very much about the language that they're written in. So they just feel very specific to print and to the page and to, and to, and to literature and not easily adaptable. Not that it stops anyone, but for, for movies. <laughs> that, now I'm tempted to ask you a little bit about the adaptations you've seen recently. Have you seen anything that's been a successful adaptation this season? I mean, it's sort of been notably rough. You know, there was way back in... in oh, there were some end, terrible the ones, the right? Summer. The Goldfinch. Yes, at the end of the summer, there was the Goldfinch, which was just a, a catastrophe. I mean, there was the interesting attempt by Edward Norton to adapt Jonathan Lethem's Motherless Brooklyn, which was, you know, not at all a, a faithful adaptation, which I think is sort of the way to go. He took what he was interested in in the book, which was the main character and, and his neurological issue and some of the broader themes, but he changed the story radically. He moved it back into the 1950s. He's turned it into his own version of Chinatown. I didn't think it was a very successful movie, but it was at least an interesting attempt to kind of, to use a book as the basis for a film that would be completely different and would stand on its own, which I think is sort of the test. It's not how close it is to what any reader thinks it should be, but what a filmmaker kind of wants to do with it. That book came out a, a long time ago, I think in the 90s. Did it come out in the 90s? Yeah, I actually reviewed it for Newsday in like 1997 or 8. Wow. And then... That's how old I am. <laughs> but also there were problems in the filming, right? I mean, there was a terrible fire. There was a, a, a fatal fire. It was sort of a long road to getting it done. And I think that Norton had been wanting to do something with it for a very long time, for I think almost 20 years. I think he optioned it as soon as it was published. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. John, what are you reading? Anything that's going to be a movie soon? No, but something that has been in different form. I will give you a little bit of a window into how this segment makes us think sometimes during the week, because I knew that Tony and Sue were going to be on. And I thought, well, we have special guests on. And so I want to gussy myself up and maybe and look smart because, you know, they're incredibly intelligent. And I, and I don't usually. And I figured that they'd be reading, you know, very like I love the friend as well. Sigurd Nunez's book. So and what I've been reading, aside from some things I had to read for work this week, is a collection, an anthology of essays about Peanuts, the comic strip. It is called The Peanuts Papers, Writers and Cartoonists on Charlie Brown, Snoopy and the Gang, and the Meaning of Life. And so this morning I was in, <laughs> I literally thought to myself, well, let me scan my like popular science philosophy of mind shelf and see if there's anything I can start reading on the subway and talk about that <laughs> instead. Um, but here I am with The Peanuts. The contributors, it's a pretty star-studded list. There's George Saunders and Adam Gopnik and I think... The prize for least likely contributor to an anthology is Umberto Eco on Peanuts. And but the thing that, that what does he have to say? Uh, you know, he he writes about he writes about Crazy Cat and Peanuts and the and the influence of one on the other. There's a lot of sort of comics history in this book, which is interesting. And and there are two pieces called The Gospel According to Linus, which is really great on his his philosophy and his faith. The thing that made me pick it up was when it was still way off in the future, I saw someone tweet probably the table of contents, and I saw that Peter Kramer, who I think is a really brilliant writer about psychology, writes about Lucy's psychiatrist stand, where people come to her for help. And so I thought that is just the greatest <laughs> match of, of writer and subject, and it, and it really is terrific. I'll just read a little bit of his toward the end of his piece to give you a sense of that one. And, and there's a lot of this kind of thing in the book, just really smart people. It, it, since I read it, I've been kind of wandering around bookstores and picking up Peanuts anthologies sometimes thinking, oh, I should, you know, get... But I don't... I, it doesn't stick with me. I mean, I love the TV specials and have a lot of affection for the characters, but there is something about reading the strips one after another that it's not very funny <laughs> in, in a modern way and its its softness is a little bit too sometimes. Did you do that when you were a kid? Did you read... Because when I was yeah. growing up, I had tons of those books of, of like Peanuts 
Peanuts and The Wizard of Id and Hager the Horrible and all of them, <laughs> just like that. That And I would read them again and again and again. I, I, one of my happiest memories as a parent was watching my son devour his first Peanuts, Peanuts volume because I oh, love them. Funny. And I can quote them chapter like I, chapter I, I, verse. I would I look at them, them in the paper and I love the TV specials, but I, I don't think we had anthologies of those. I loved, you know, The Far Side and, and things that were a little darker. But um. The TV specials had such melancholy songs, you know, that, that are haunting. No, and, and Linus's, like the Great Pumpkin Patch, there's really great writing in this book about pretty deep writing about the the disappointment of faith, but the you know sincerity and still holding it and the importance of that. And Barack Obama did an introduction to one of the recent oh, wow. collections. They've they've come out with these really great They're gorgeous, found yeah. collections decade by decade. And what's interesting, my kids too, I'm love watching them read these, but they're very partial to the earlier ones and don't like to read the later Peanuts. <laughs> well, apparently, I think like a lot of things, it, it people tend to agree that it kind of tailed off after a certain yes. point and Snoopy kind of got out of control the way that like Homer Simpson <laughs> took over the Simpsons. And, but the really funny thing is that I was reading this on a train going upstate for a week because I was I had a few days off and I read Peter Kramer's essay on the train and I literally walked down the main street of this town I was staying in and outside of this barbecue restaurant they had set up their own little Lucy stand and it said psychiatric help five cents and it had the same exact look and I just thought that is the most bizarre coincidence of my reading life, I think. Did you shell out? <laughs> there was no one in at the time. Lucy was on a smoke break. I'll just read a couple of paragraphs of the Peter Kramer piece because I love this. So he's, he's basically talking about this great line in the in the strip where, you know, Charlie Brown lets out his heart to Lucy for the psychiatric help and her response is, snap out of it, five cents, please. And he says, considering talk therapy alone, were my patients the worst for my reticence? Perhaps. We are free to imagine that Charlie Brown gains something from Lucy's brusque response. He is being thrown back on his own resources with the message that they may be more substantial substantial than he believes. Lucy, as therapist, I am suggesting, does not go entirely against the grain. That's the genius of a perfect joke, isn't it? To encapsulate every aspect of a complex ambivalence. Snap out of it. Five cents, please. Captures and exposes contradictory feelings of awe and contempt towards psychoanalysis and its alternatives. That said, it would be wrong to reduce the doctors in routine to its premises. The genius of Schultz is in coaxing transcendent results from everyday material. The subject is the human condition. The humor in that perfect strip is bittersweet. We feel blue, we expose our feelings, we get a bracing dismissal, and we pay for the privilege. Life's like that. Good grief. <laughs> Sue, what are you reading? Well, I'm relieved to, to be reading fiction again, which is my first love after spending quite a bit of time trying to read some great political nonfiction, like the kind of political nonfiction that reads like novels like Richard Kramer's What It Takes and Mark Leibovich's This Town. And was this all in preparation for your cover story in the Sunday magazine this week on the two sort of first-year congresswomen? Yes, it was. I was trying to, because I just was trying to find a way into writing about it that felt really lively, really vivid, and really intimate and really personal. And I think, you know, Robert Draper's book, When the Tea Party Came to Town, does a lot of that and also is like a great primer on just like, how does the house work? But I also think that Mark Leibovich and obviously Richard Kramer just really take you inside the heads of the people he's writing about. And that was my main objective is I really wanted it to feel very personal personal, and as if you were experiencing it yourself as a human rather than a, a reader, you know, sort of trying to get inside what politicians are thinking. Listeners, she succeeds. So <laughs> Google this article down. Thank you, Pamela. But now I'm back to my fiction reading ways. And Lauren Groff, who's a fiction writer whom I admire, had recently edited a selection of short stories by a writer named Nancy Hale, who had kind of fallen into modern day obscurity, even though in her day she was one of the most popular short story writers of her time. And she published her first short story in The New Yorker when she was 21 in like uh, 1929 and then went on to publish more short stories in The New Yorker than maybe anybody else ever. And that definitely made me curious since I like Lauren a lot. And I was just curious about what the short story form was even like when she started writing in the 30s and 40s or what was the, what was the New Yorker publishing. So her stories feel a tiny bit dated at times. There's a starchiness to them that Lauren notes as well. But she also was clearly 
very innovative for her time, and there was a lot of variety in the kind of form that she did. A lot of her writing has like this deep sensual quality and a lot of nostalgia and a lot of writing about the passage of time, which is sort of interesting because, of course, she herself kind of falls out of favor, you know, not long after her peak. And and she draws on her own childhood and life a lot. Her parents were artists. And in one story, her character is talking about her sort of artsy father who was an art critic on the Tribune. And then she goes on to say, nobody remembers who he was anymore. Everybody forgets things so fast. <laughs> but the story that I think Lauren probably really responded to the most is called On the Beach. And it's about a mother who is having this kind of perfect bonding moment with her son. And she's enjoying the feeling of being alive and her oneness with her child and the warmth. But something keeps intruding and sort of jolting into her consciousness, which is her awareness that just a few nights earlier, somebody at a dinner table had basically been explaining to her the power of nuclear bomb for the first time, that she'd really been introduced to it. And she talks about this feeling of all the things she had loved had in her recollections of this conversation, which keeps intruding on the moment, had fallen from her. This was what the threat of extinction did to one. And she quotes Archibald Leach reading, to feel the always coming on, the always rising of the night. I mean, for Lauren Groff, I think, and for many thinking people, this is climate change. And so, you know, Lauren writes a lot about parenthood. She uh, also writes a lot about, in her own way, the sort of constant clash of the lushness of everyday lived experience and the recognition of its possible extinction. So I can see why when she read that story, it must have really spoken to her in a way that made her want to get involved with this writer. The collection is called Where the Light Falls, Selected Stories of Nancy Hale. There was a piece in The New Yorker recently by Bob Gottlieb on Booth Tarkington, another writer who was incredibly popular and critically praised in his time and has fallen into total obscurity. Did you read this piece? Yes, I did. And and it's funny because Booth Tarkington is maybe has a reputation that survives a little bit for like movie people hmm. because of the Magnificent Ambersons, which is sort of the great oh, right. half-lost Orson Welles masterpiece. That's also just a name that, you know, Nancy Hale has a less of a chance than Booth Tarkington of just being somewhere in the back of your head. Yeah, I feel like, why aren't more kids named Booth Tarkington? <laughs> Darn it, that's a good name. <laughs> you, you haven't named any of your kids that. Put your money no. where your mouth is. <laughs> what, what are you reading this week? Well, just a quick thing uh, about the Peanuts, which I think my first encounter with the idea that there were people who wrote things was from the Peanuts because of Snoopy constantly yeah. banging out, you know, Twas a Dark and Stormy Night on his little typewriter. Someone I'm writes sure there's got to be... Yes, someone writes about Snoopy in the publishing industry. Oh, interesting. You know, the, way he, <laughs> okay. the way he waits for responses to the manuscripts he sends out, he doesn't get them. I responded much more to those than the, than the Red Baron <laughs> uh, series. So... I am reading the book that I'll probably talk about for the next you know few weeks because it's a long book by John Farrell. It's a one-volume biography of Richard Nixon. So this is, I guess, my impeachment reading. And I'm going to only talk about it very briefly, and then I'll talk about another book that I read because I'm sure I will come back to it. But this is early on in the book when Farrell is writing about Richard Nixon's childhood. And he was one of four boys growing up in Yorba Linda. He, you know, grew up very poor, went to school barefooted. Um, and he had three brothers. And in childhood, two of them died. They had a cow. And the father, Dick's father, was opposed to pasteurizing milk. And so they had raw milk from the cow. And the cow apparently was tubercular. So one of the God. kids, Arthur, Dick's beloved younger brother, died very suddenly they you know they said he's not he's not doing well and the next day he was dead and his older brother died but it took him 6 years and so he was in a sanatorium for long periods of time and listeners will remember I, I read another book about tubercular sanatorium Betty McDonald's the plague which is really oh, yeah. great earlier this year so that resonated and when his older brother was in a sanatorium. Their mother went with him and left Dick alone with the other surviving brother and their father to sort of, you know, eat food out of cans for months on end and just not a warm environment. But I just want to read a teeny thing, which is this is sort of like early, nice Richard Nixon territory that we're in. In a heartfelt college essay, Dick recalled Arthur's, that's his younger brother who died quickly, Arthur's, quote, unusually beautiful eyes, black eyes which seem to sparkle with hidden fire and to beckon us to come on some secret journey which will carry us to the land of make-believe. Hmm. 
So not not the tricky dick that we often uh, think about in later years. It's interesting to read about that. And it, it, a really nice contrast to a book that I read more for research than anything else, which was a book called YouTubers by Chris Stokel Walker, who's a British tech journalist. Reading this book was a little bit like discovering that there is some sort of secret hidden culture that you thought of was maybe of a, a micro subculture, but is actually a hugely dominant culture out there that you just choose to remain ignorant of. You know, it's kind of like discovering statistics or thinking about statistics, like the fact that 72% of Americans believe in angels, like real angels with wings. And you think like, I don't, well, I think I don't believe in angels. I also don't watch YouTube. And so it's kind of <laughs> shocking to me in a way to realize that basically everyone else does and they watch it a lot more than anything else. And so this book was just this window into this like whole other world that I I recognize is going on. It's like the Kardashians. Mm-hmm. I've never seen a Kardashian. I know they exist. I know they're hugely popular, but I don't participate. And that's what reading this book was like. These crazy stories of things like parents who became very popular YouTubers. I'm sure many listeners are aware of this story. It was some terrible scandal that happened a number of years ago, but it just passed me by where they pranked their own children for laughs and became hugely popular. And so, of course, the ante kept kept upping the ante to the point where I think, you know, these kids were in constant physical danger. And eventually the kids were taken away and put into foster care. And that was the end of their YouTube career as well as their family. And just things like this, you know, that it's just all going on right here next to us (laughs) while we're, you know, talking about Booth Tarkington. Other people are, you know. Endangering their kids for YouTube views. (laughs) Yes, like. Wanting to be YouTubers. And, and and again, I recognize that like NASCAR and, you know, NFL and other huge like, cultural and angels like this is this is the culture that many other people are enjoying. I don't know. Do you guys watch YouTube? I have a student who's writing a thesis on YouTube videos on sort of some of these long form, very sort of serious, eggheady, philosophical and, and, and political YouTube. There's sort of a, a subculture within the subculture. I mean, I think it's worthy of a lot more attention because when you look at the statistics, there's so much going on in there. And I think a lot of Gen X E journalists are ignoring it because it doesn't really enter into our world necessarily. And we also kind of don't understand. Like I watch some of these things partly to help the student along. And I just fundamentally feel sometimes like I don't get it. Like the unboxing videos. The unboxing videos. <laughs> or the whole sort of, what is it called, ASMR phenomenon. Oh, my God. You know? we, I bet we have some Gen Z listeners there. I'm sure there are some of them out there and they're listening rolling to their this. Eyes, they are like, just laughing at us God. right now. At our, well, I don't know what my point of entry is. Like, I wouldn't really know where to begin. That's sort of, my kids watch quite a bit of it. I mean, I find, again, YouTube can be occasionally really helpful, but in a super oldster way. Like, yeah. last week I had Nicholas Bicola on as a guest who wrote that terrific book about Buckley and Baldwin, and you can go online and you can find that debate. Or every once in a while, I'll be like, remember the jingle for TWA? You know, and I'll put it in, and there you go. And, like, that's the way I use it, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of great That is the sort of the Gen X way to use it, right, as a a kind of archive of old television. Right. It's like a museum of TV and radio used to be. So all all my favorite country singers when they were on Hee Haw, you know, you you can find them endlessly. Yeah. I, I went and saw Karen O perform last week, and I afterwards I went home and I just watched all the old Letterman clips of the Yeah Yeah Yeahs performing on his show, <laughs> and it was great. All Took right, like forty five minutes of my time. <laughs> well, on that antiquated note, um, <laughs> let's just run down the books we read one more time. Tony, let's start with you. I'm reading The Friend by Sigrid Nunez. And also, as I didn't get to mention, I've lately discovered the Italian writer Natalia Ginsberg, who is an influence on Nunez. And, and you can hear the sort of the, the resonances of their voices, but who's, who's right now sort of my, my top world fiction star. Sue? I just am reading Where the Light Falls, uh, selected stories of Nancy Hale. I'm reading The Peanuts Papers, edited by Andrew Blauner. And I read YouTubers by Chris Stokel Walker, and I am reading John A. Farrell's Richard Nixon, The Life. All right, A.O. Scott, Susan Dominus, John Williams, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Paula. Thank, Thank you. you. It was a pleasure. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. And you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. I write back, not right away, but I do. The Book Review Podcast is produced by the great Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media with a major assist from my colleague John Williams. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul. Pamela Paul.